My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. I'm coming to you from the Hickson campus of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we'd love to have you come and visit us. But if you're not in the area, please go to OurSundaySchool.com to see all of the resources we saw in class. Welcome to Our Sunday School. Uh, if you want to follow along with the notes that we're walking through today, you can go to OurSundaySchool.com and click on the Read tab, and then there's some links there to follow through. Uh, but my first question, since this is our first week in this series, is how do you pronounce the word on the screen? <clears throat> there is shocking disparity uh, in Christianity on the answer to this question. So I want to just explore what your thoughts are for just a moment. So, so Nahum, okay, that's one option. Nahum, that's another option. That's what I actually use. Yeah. Nahum, yep, that's actually, I found a, an uh, audio Bible that pronounced it that way, Nahum, and I thought, really? Okay. How would you say it in Hebrew? All right, so I'm, I'm going to have to say it three or four times, and I'll get it right one of them, and I'll tell you which one it is. It's, uh, there's a K in it, but you, you really just kind of think about the K, you don't really say the K. Uh, it's Nahum, no, that was too hard, Nahum. Nahum, that was it right there. Just this really simple, like Nahum. Not really, it's not a, not like Klingon guttural Hebrew where you're like, wow, you, you should like cover your mouth while you speak because you're going to spit on somebody. Um, so, so there's a lot of different ways to say this, but however you want to say it, I would like for you to turn there in your Bible. Uh, if you don't know where this is, uh, probably the easiest way to find Nahum is to go to Matthew and then just start turning left. Uh, and you're probably going to go about 10 or 15 pages left from Matthew, and you're going to run into Nahum. Uh, it's in all those tiny, tiny little books, uh, the minor prophets. And they're not minor because they don't have an important message. They're minor because they're short. Um, so on your handout there, if you've got your handouts on your tables, uh, I'm just going to, today is a, a series of introductory questions, and then we'll just start to get into Nahum 1 uh, a little bit on the back side of the handout. So where is Nahum in the Bible? It's in the middle of the Minor Prophets. Uh, who wrote Nahum? Nahum, right? Just, we start off with easy questions, and then we get harder. So Nahum wrote Nahum. And uh, so Nahum's a prophet. So what does a prophet do? Well, a, a prophet is uh, a mouthpiece. That's your next blank. A mouthpiece who proclaimed the message of God. So God wants to say something to human beings. He says it to a prophet who then tell other people. Uh, it's a pretty simple process, uh, but there were significant penalties if you messed this up, right? What happened if a prophet does not say exactly what God tells him to say? You die, right? It's the smite button. The smite button gets pushed, and you're done, and that's the end of that. So it's a mouthpiece of proclaiming the message of God. Uh, it was somebody who called Israel back to the law. This was for the majority of the prophets. They spoke directly to Israel, and they were calling Israel back to the law because they had deviated from obedience to the law in some way, and this was not a good thing. Uh, and the best analogy that I've ever heard for a prophet uh, came from Terry Brown. These are some of his notes from when he talked through the minor prophets here at Stuart Heights several years ago. He said, it's someone who saw the check engine light and delivered a message. So you ever seen the check engine light on your car come on? You're like, no, no. What, they delivered a what? A code, yeah. 
Yeah, while you're in line for admissions, that's when your check engine light comes on, right? Yeah, that's, that's about right. That's not a, not a good time for your check engine light to come on. It's not a good one. So this is somebody who sees that there is some issue, hears the word of the Lord, or has a vision of some sort, and then communicates that out. So um, the thing that I, I like about this particular picture is this is how Terry actually taught me how prophets' uh, prophecies were fulfilled. So if you imagine uh, the prophet is standing here in the forefront of the picture and is looking out over uh, distant mountaintops. And the farther away the mountains are, the farther in time you are from the prophet. And the prophet is speaking. And the prophet's words may have some very immediate short-term fulfillment. Right? There may be something that we are talking about that is going to come to pass very soon. But the prophet's words may also have additional layers of fulfillment. So that so far out into the future, in fact, that the prophet can't even see when the details of this are going to occur. And we see this a lot in the Old Testament. You'll see somebody make a prophecy and you go, oh yeah, I get that. that. That dealt with some issue that they were dealing with right then. But this is also fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the end kingdom and the judgment and justice and righteousness. And it's going to come later on. And that's what we're going to see in Nahum as well, is that like, he's actually standing in the middle of the trees here that he is prophesying to. And then there's also other waves of prophecy that are going to come true. So... Uh, your two blanks here. How is that message fulfilled? The first is immediate fulfillment. So we're standing right in the middle of it, and we've got a message to deliver. And then there was also future fulfillment. So immediate and future. And I like this picture whenever I think about and meditate on and read through the prophets to just remember that you know, there was stuff that they were dealing with immediately, but God is literally the author of language and is masterful beyond measure in his ability to use it in a variety of time periods, which I think is just beautiful. Uh, it's spectacular. So let's talk about uh, when was Nahum written, and you should have a little uh, picture on your handout. So let's, let's talk for just a second. So if we, if we start from way over here, we've got creation, a um, couple thousand years uh, or a thousand-ish years later, you got the flood. The thousand years after that, you've got uh, Abraham shows up on the scene. A thousand years after that, uh, you've got David and Solomon. And in Solomon's time, the kingdom is divided. You've got this northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you notice that the Judah bar is much longer, it's because Judah existed much longer. This is the, the uh, path that the Messiah came through. Uh, the northern kingdom, uh, you see the date of 722 B.C. That's when the northern kingdom was carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. So four major world powers in the Old Testament. You've got the Egyptians. They were there about here. Um, you've got the Assyrians. They're about here. You've got the Babylonians and then the Persians after them. Uh, and Nahum is actually not a prophet to Israel. He speaks to Nineveh. And if you remember, there was another prophet that went to Nineveh, a reluctant prophet. What was his name? Jonah. Yes, he's the one we all talk about. And we talk about Jonah because Jonah has this nice storyline that you can follow and you can teach to small children and they can get it. We don't talk about Nahum because Nahum is just, y'all gonna die. And, and you, like you think, oh, he, he's making, I'm not making a joke. 
Like Nahum talks about these stacks of corpses. You're like, oh, that's, yay, what a wonderful series to start after Easter. <laughs> yeah, we're done with the bunnies, <laughs> okay? Like, the bunnies are gone. <laughs> so I, I want to make sure we understand where we are in history. Um, so Nahum is, he is uh, an, an Israelite, and he, he looks and he sees the issues that the Assyrians are bringing to bear on his country at this point. So he's already, he knows the northern kingdom has been dragged off into slavery, into captivity, and they're, they actually don't, they don't come back. Like, that's, that's it. They go. You see the bar stops. <clears throat> and the, the southern kingdoms, uh, the southern kingdom, it is still going on. So this is, Nahum happens after the Assyrian captivity, but before the Babylonian captivity. So this is the big exile. This is the children of Israel going to exile, and this is a, a big problem. So uh, we know Nahum was written after Egypt fell. Um, that's about 664 B.C. Uh, because the city of Thebes is actually mentioned in Nahum. And we know it was written before Assyria fell in 612 B.C., about right here, because Assyria is described as being this great, great country. So most folks are going to peg Nahum, and if you want something to write there, when, did, when was Nahum written? It was about 650 B.C. So the next question ought to be pretty simple because I think I've said it a couple of times. Who was Nahum written to? Yeah, Nineveh. Uh, specifically Nineveh, but the larger context, uh, Assyria. Uh, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And they were the, this is the height of the Assyrian power in the world. And Nahum actually prophesied at the time of the king named Ashurbanipal. And you can actually go to the British Museum today. Like if you were to travel to the British Museum today, and you could see uh, Ashurbanipal's artwork that he collected and he had uh, authorized and commissioned to go be made. And he was really, really fond of lions. Like He was into lion art. Like That was his thing. And there's just dozens and dozens and dozens of these pictures on the Internet that you can go see at the British Museum. So this was the lion hunt of Ashurbanipal. Now, Nahum was written about 100 years after Jonah's work in Nineveh. And at the end of the book of Jonah, is Nineveh in good shape or in bad shape? They're in good shape, right? They have repented, they have turned, they have, things are looking good, and yet about 50 or 60 years later, the Assyrians drag the northern kingdom off into captivity. So something goes south very, very quickly. And it goes so far south that God sends Nahum, and Nahum has a message there. So, rather than me tell you what Nahum is about, guess what we're going to do? We're going to read Nahum, that's right. So, hopefully you've had time to find Nahum in your Bibles. It's three chapters long, and I'm going to read all three chapters. And you'll get a feel for both what it's about, and feel free to follow along uh, in your own Bible. Uh, I'm reading out of the New King James or you can just listen, and I think the tone will be pretty apparent pretty quickly. Uh, the book of Nahum. The burden against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way 
In the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. For from you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your, mighty, your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls. And the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up. And her maidservant shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt! Halt! They cry. But no one turns back. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The hearts melt and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side and all their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lions? in the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion walked and the lioness and lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lioness, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victims never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, 
Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There's a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face, and I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you no better than Noamon that was situated by the river, that had waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and Lubim were your helpers, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locust. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts and your generals like great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? Pretty clear messaging. My, my inner evil reading voice gets to come out when I do this. <laughs> um, I actually felt myself snarling a couple of times when I was practicing this earlier this week. And I thought, I think there is a bit of a snarl in some of this. It's just, this is rough, right? I mean, this is, do you see why we don't start puggles with this, right? It's like, yay, stacked corpses, yay. I mean, Okay, let's put things in a bit of perspective here. So, here's my question. What's Nahum about? Yeah, God's judgment. And his justice coming as well. To whom? Who does God's judgment come to? Yeah, his enemies. Enemies of himself and his people. And here, who specifically are they? Nineveh. And in the broader context, Assyria. So he talks about the king of Assyria, who actually lived in Nineveh. <clears throat> and about uh, 35 or 40 years after this was written, uh, Nineveh is overthrown by the Babylonians. So in another generation, and, and you can take the historical records of 
what actually happened to Nineveh. And you can lay them side by side with Nahum and all of the modern non-believing scholars will say there's no way Nineveh, there's no way Nahum was written before 612 because you could not have been that accurate with the destructive details. It just, it's, you, you wouldn't have known those things. Well, I know somebody who knew those things, <laughs> right? This is, you, you tip your hand to your theology when you start challenging prophecy. So it doesn't take long, uh, but it's going to take a bit longer for the parts about Jesus to be fulfilled. <clears throat> Did you hear it? There's justice coming. There's a judge that is going to declare what is right and what is wrong and separate those that follow and those who don't. This is what is implied in the, I'm going to go judge the enemies. And I can just kind of picture Nahum now with the Lord having a broader perspective on all of God's story going, oh, like I was talking about the Messiah there? How awesome is that? Because I thought we were just scattered and I thought I was going to get to rail against Nineveh just like Jonah wanted to. Because if you remember Jonah's message, what was Jonah's message? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's like, he, he, he didn't even really call them to repentance. He just said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that was it. Eight words. And he sat down and pouted. Right? And if you go, well, that seems kind of stern. Not until you read Nahum. <laughs> right? So, so where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is obviously in every book of the Bible. But if you look at Nahum 1.15, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Now, we like to talk about peace, and I like to talk about peace. The Hebrew word and the Greek words for peace are many times the words used for uh, joining bones back together, something that has been broken. But in order to have peace, you have to resolve conflict. You don't just walk into a place and go, I declare peace. No, like there's, there's work for peace to be done. Um, the United Nations has uh, two different types of uh, troops that they send into an area. One are peacekeepers. So these are the people that, like, there's some level of existing peace, and their job is to go there and to, like, keep the peace. And then, then we have peacemakers, is what Jesus calls us to be, which is to go into a war zone and make peace, to declare what truth is, and to say, this is truth, this is not truth, and I'm going to help assist the peacemaking process between man and God, because that's really the only peace that is truly important. So <clears throat> I'll read you something from uh, the Comiskey. He's one of my authors that I'm reading. It's on page 777. It says, Nahum reveals God as a warrior who fights for his people. And we read, when we read Nahum in conjunction with the book of Revelation, we are reminded that Jesus Christ is coming again at the end of time to put an end to all evil, whether spiritual or human. So keep that in mind as we go through Nahum and look at these individual parts. All right, so backside of your handout. So we're going to be in Nahum for five weeks. So this week and next week, we're going to look at Nahum 1. Week number three, we're going to look at Nahum 2. And weeks four and five, we're going to look at Nahum chapter 3. So we've already read through the text. Our typical uh, outline each week is to read God's Word, explain God's Word, apply it, and then personalize. So then some, since I'm splitting Nahum 1 up into two weeks, sorry, Darla. We're not getting to 
application and personalization today. You've got to come back next week to get that. Today's the setting and the scene and the context. Uh, but I do want to ask you a question there. Are there any literary or structural observations? What did you notice, especially if you looked at the page as I was reading? What did you notice about Nahum, the literary structure? Nahum is poem, right? It's a poem. So it's poem or poetry, whichever word you want to use for your blank there on the back side of the handout. <clears throat> it's poetry. And like Nahum, uh, very much like Obadiah, we studied a couple months ago, is a very skilled poet. Uh, most of the commentators that I have read around this put Isaiah as the kind of the chief poetry writing person in the Old Testament. Like that's about his, that's kind of the top of the rung. And Nahum is almost always second. Sometimes Nahum is actually listed first as a better poet than Isaiah. He does a lot of interesting things. Um, you remember how you say his name in Hebrew? Nahum? The, the word in Nahum 1-2 for, uh, if you look back in Nahum 1-2, says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. That word is Nakam. Now, Hebrew poetry does not rhyme with sound. It rhymes with meaning. You have a line that means something. You have another line that means the same and kind of extends that a little bit. It's synonymous parallelism. But when you were able to rhyme with sound, that was a whole other level of skill as far as your poetry is concerned. Um, and a lot of people think that this is actually where English poetry comes from, is the, the higher level skill and the, the meaning part was just scrapped. But Nahum is poetry. Um, and there's also a partial Hebrew acrostic in Nahum verse, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. So I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of a Hebrew acrostic. So if you have a physical Bible, open up to Psalm 119, and I'll show you what a Hebrew acrostic looks like. Some of you may have... Um, oh, it's even in this one, yeah. So this is a, a pew Bible. And you, you, you may have looked at these and just not kind of known what they were, but if you look at Psalm 119, directly under the title, there may be a word there that you're not familiar with. It starts with an A. What is it? Uh, that's the author. Underneath that, what is it? Aleph. Yes, you may know what that is? It's A. It's, a says ah, ah, ah. It's the first character of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you go down, if you look at verses 1 through 8, each line in Hebrew of verses 1 through 8 all start with the Hebrew letter A. That's a pretty skilled poet. You're like, oh, that's kind of neat. Okay. What's, what's after verse 8? Do you see something else? Looks like Beth. It's actually Bait. Sorry. Bait. That's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verses 9 through 16 all start with the Hebrew letter Bait. You have Gimel, 17 through 24, Dalet, 25 through 32, Heh, Vav, Zain, Tet, Yod, Kaf, Lamed, all the way through the end of the poem. You end up with Tau in verse 169 through 176. So if I give you a challenge, I want you to write a 26 stanza poem. Each line of each eight segment of each Stanza has to start with a corresponding letter of the... You'd go, well, that's a pretty good poet. And oh, by the way, it has to have a consistent theme throughout. 
And oh, by the way, each pair of lines has to extend the meaning of the line prior without repeating it exactly. And oh, by the way, don't use the same word too many times because that would be too repetitive. You see the command of language that would be required to do something like this? All right. Psalm 119 starts with Aleph and goes all the way to Tau. The whole Hebrew alphabet. In Nahum, and you can't see it in English because we don't read Hebrew. And I'm okay with that because Hebrew is ridiculously hard. (laughs) Uh, Like Greek is difficult. Hebrew is this whole other level of just, just, there's a lot of complexity to it. Uh, And it sounds like you're speaking Klingon. So, I mean, that's the cool part, but, but it is what it is, right? So if you go back to Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, there is a partial acrostic. And to be honest, more guesses have been made about why this is here than I care to share with you. There are a lot of opinions on this. But here's my default position. My default position is that God wrote the Bible. And that God chose the specific words that he wanted to use for specific reasons for his purposes. Okay? And I think we can probably all get behind that. You with me there? Okay. And if God chose to breathe into Asaph, probably the most skilled songwriter in all of Scripture, and develop a fully fleshed out Hebrew acrostic, describing the completeness and thoroughness of the veracity and confidence that we can have in God's Word, which is what Psalm 119 is all about. It's about God's Word. It's a complete set. If God were to inspire Nahum to write something that was partial and broken during the midst of a prophecy against a nation whose time as the world power was about to be partially broken that might be an extraordinarily poetic way inside the structure of the poetry to be consistent with the message of the poem. And I would say, wow. <laughs> like the st- He's communicating through the structure of the broken acrostic, the brokenness that's about to occur to Assyria. <laughs> So I want your head to go, what? Yes, good. That's exactly right. That, that's right where I want you. Now, this is one of the lesser skilled things that Nahum does in a literary style throughout the book of Nahum. So this is not, even, this is not like the top five. This is lower on the list. So when we get into chapter, later in chapter one and chapters two and chapter three, and I start dropping these poetry amazing things that he does I just want you to go God is a good author and even in his communication of judgment he does it beautifully and with a style and a excellence that is unsurpassed so we can even stand in awe of him in his judgment and in the language that he uses for judgment which I think is just that's where, that's where my head's been for the last couple of weeks with Nahum. It's just been, that's just incredible. How do, you, how do you have beautiful language in judgment? All right. So let's drop down the next section there. What do the words mean? We're only going to do three of them today because I want you to have these three in mind as you read through Nahum. 
Uh, and if you had to think, as I'm not going to tell you the answer yet, and some of you have already figured it out because you have study Bibles, and it's like in big, bold print, the first thing your study Bible says, what Nahum's name means. But if you think about the message of Nahum, like what would you think his name would mean? Like, what do you, what do you think? Just shout it out. Like, like vengeance and justice and judgment and like just wrath, you know, just like pouring out bowls of wrath, and there's just this water that sweeps through and rushes and you know what his name means? Comfortable. You're like, well, wait, hang on, time out. So why would his name mean comfortable? Yeah. Depends on which side of the wrath you're on. <laughs> right? If you are God's children who have been invaded by a foreign power and have been taken away, if they didn't know that the Babylonians a couple of decades later were going to overthrow the Assyrians and then drag them off into captivity for... This is a long period here. And they never really fully recover as a nation completely. It's just brokenness and brokenness and brokenness. Would you find comfort in the fact that God will, in fact, deliver justice and judgment? I think so. It's about your perspective. Right? Because if you're on the Lord's side, this is a comfortable message. If you're not on the Lord's side, this is about as uncomfortable as it gets. Right? I will, how did he say it? I will uh, throw abominable filth on you. I actually thought I heard a chuckle from you guys. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of, I will cast abominable filth upon you. Yeah, that's comfortable, right? I'm like, I don't, I haven't gotten into what that Hebrew means, but I, I don't think it's pleasant. <laughs> I don't think it's very pleasant. So that's the, the first blank there. I think it may be your last blank today. Yep. Uh, so the next word that shows up over and over and over in Nahum, and Nahum only shows up once at the beginning because the book's not about him. And we really don't know anything about him other than his name, and he's, from Elkish, uh, he's an Elkishite. We have no idea where Elkosh is. I mean, it's just there's so many, there's so many uh, ideas on that. Nobody really knows. But it doesn't impact the message either. The next name that's important is Jehovah, Yahweh. This is the Jewish name of God. Um, this was a name that was not tossed around lightly. You, you did not take this name in vain. You were very cautious and careful when you used this. And Nahum uses it a lot. And the implication here is that I am comfortable with God. I'm comfortable in my relationship with him. I am confident in the vision that I got to communicate the words that he said in the way that he said them. And that's... If you've been told to use God's name a whole bunch of times in a short amount of time in a message, and you've been told your entire life that, that this name is special, and this name would be uttered only at special times, then you, you, you want to be really confident in your messaging. So he was very confident in his messaging. And then the word that uh, I think is just a brilliant use of names poetry is nakam. This is this word for avenges or vengeance. And it's just to, to, to punish, to revenge, to take vengeance. So I, I do this periodically with you. Uh, and I want to make sure that you know uh, what Hebrew looks like. So this is uh, Nahum 1.1 in Hebrew. Uh, and Nahum's name is actually right here. Uh, and you can go to different uh, websites. I like studylight.org slash ISB. And I think I've got that link in your handout. Uh, if you, it's, it's clickable. Like you don't have to know Hebrew. You just have to use the mouse. So if you can click on the name, 
and it'll pop up something like this, and it'll show. That's how I learned how to say Nahum's name. I don't read Hebrew. I just listen to an expert say it, and then I try to say that until what I say sounds like what this person is saying. And I go, yay, I can speak Hebrew. Not really. It's okay. Uh, so it's Nahum. Uh, this is a proper name. It's a masculine. It shows up one time in the Bible, uh, and it means comfortable. Uh, and he was an Israelitish prophet, we think. <laughs> uh, and uh, you can go do a little bit of study on that. Now, the, the interesting thing is that you can click on every single word in Nahum and do something very, very similar for the entire book. And you can see all these sorts of details, uh, which is what we will do uh, for the remainder of the book. Uh, you guys may wonder, well, how does Jim find this information out? That he goes, well, I, I pray and I study and I think and I ask for God's help. And then I click on a whole lot of stuff. And then I end up with just gobs and gobs and gobs of stuff. And then you start cutting until I can fit it into 37 minutes. And then we come teach a Sunday school class. So you have literally access to everything that I have access to with this. And if you don't like the format of this, because it's a really crappy looking website. I mean, somebody needs to give them $100,000 and they need to fix it. But uh, you can go to blb.org and you can do pretty much the same thing over there. Uh, it's a prettier interface. So those are your resources. So next week... Darla. Uh, we'll get to the rest of Nahum 1, we'll get to application, we'll get to personalization, and we'll kind of continue this as we go through. So your homework is a couple of things. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit for help. I want you to read next week's text multiple times in multiple ways. It's Nahum 1. Talk to somebody about the text. Uh, you can go to our uh, Facebook page uh, and uh, do that here, uh, facebook.com slash our Sunday school. And then uh, if you want to uh, subscribe to future lessons. You can go there and subscribe as well. Now, extra credit. You see the extra credit? Some of you have already done this. Uh, I heard that you've already done this. The Bible Project video on Nahum. I think it's like five minutes. Like, seriously. It's five minutes long. It's really, really good. Uh, it's a great summary. You end up with a, pic a visual picture. I keep waiting for the Bible Project to print a Bible with their picture on a two-page layout before each book. Like, I think that would be a really neat Bible. So you can just go back and look at the, the views you're scrolling through and kind of see how it works and the whole nine yards, but they haven't, haven't done that yet. So I keep sending them emails on this. Yes, the, the side effect from that uh, is that you're going to want to watch all the rest of the videos. Uh, and it is a little bit graphic. You might have dreams where you f fight your husband at 2 o'clock in the morning because you think you're fighting the Assyrians. Darla. Um, <clears throat> so Doug got a... A rude awakening. There were no stacked corpses, but there were some uh, roundhouses that were thrown, I'm told. So that's uh, all interesting stuff there. So uh, we come to our table prayer time. Uh, we'd ask that you lean in and engage. Uh, there's a weekly update. It's a sheet with a blue stripe across the top. Uh, tells you what's coming up next, the next few weeks in Sunday school. It gives you an opportunity to share new prayer requests. Uh, and if you put a prayer request in the ongoing section, it'll show up next week in the ongoing prayer request section. So uh, look over those, pray over those. Uh, after you have prayed as a table, uh, you are free to go into the worship service. So thank you for coming to Sunday School today, guys. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our weekly email. You can do both at OurSundaySchool.com.